Welcome to Women on the Line, Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Emma Hart. Moving beyond the mandate of art for me is that actually everyone has a creativity that they've been forcibly divorced from by systems of like colonial capital, gender violence, and that the project of an artist is to get everyone to be in touch and to celebrate everyone's creativity. Today on Women on the Line, we feature an interview with Alok of trans-South Asian performance art duo Dark Matter. I was able to speak with Alok in New York City in August earlier this year in anticipation of their appearances in Melbourne, which are coming up this week. Hi everyone, my name is Alok, as in tell me a joke, Alok, and I am a non-binary poet and activist based in New York City. So you're coming to Australia soon, and we'll get to what you're doing there a bit later in the interview, but maybe to, to kick things off, could you explain what Dark Matter is and, and how it came about? Sure. Um, so I'd like to say that my origin story began with me sitting alone crying to white angsty music in my childhood bedroom in Texas, where I would listen and I'd be like, what are they crying about? and be very jealous um, that they could be so explicit about their pain. So I started to write poetry not as like, I want to be a poet, but rather I was like, I need catharsis. <laughs> so I wrote some like really dark things that I somehow gained the courage to publish online on MySpace with a pseudonym. Uh, MySpace. And, <laughs> and thus began my perverse and complicated relationship with internet art, um, where yeah, so that's why I started to see myself as a poet. People were like, hey, what you're saying is really important. And I was like 13, so I was like, wow, I'm important. That's cool. Uh, and then that path sort of took me to eventually finding spoken word um, in college, where I grew up, no one did any art, so I didn't even know what spoken word was. But when I moved to California for college, I finally saw people doing spoken word, and I was like, oh my gosh, you're allowed to be emotional in public, like goals. So I started to write spoken word poetry, uh, and then I met my friend Jenny in college, and uh, I was like, hey, Jenny, you should join us for a poetry slam, and they were like, sure, and then we just started performing together. Uh, and then I was really jaded with school, so I took off some time to move to India and organize there, and then I had a, a little bit of time before I had to go back to school, and I had nothing to do. And one of my favorite organizations in New York City, Queers for Economic Justice, um, was going through some financial woes. They've since shut down. So I was like, hey, why don't I do a poetry tour to fundraise for QEJ? So that sort of began in 2012, the first time that I was performing and officially became Dark Matter later. Could you tell me about your relationship with Jenny? Like, it seems like a really important collaboration in the development of your work. Like right. So I sort of operate from the assumption that everything is actually collaborative. <laughs> I find it really difficult to believe that there is a thing called individual and that there's a thing called like mine. Um, and in my life, I think friendships have made more explicit the ways in which everything I know, learn and do comes from a series of conversations, experiences that are shared. And I think with Jenny in particular, um, Jenny was, we were in a lot of ways the mirrors to each other's souls where we needed to see ourselves externalized in other people in order to ask the questions that we needed for ourselves. So I feel like it, it has and it continues to propel me 
in all the way that I think and organize. Um, there are people that you meet that just fundamentally transform your paradigms. And I think that's one of them. Mm. They're, they're not coming to Australia. So, I mean, how, how does your solo work differ from, from the things you do in Dark Matter? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that they don't. Uh, I, I feel like it's, it's just kind of the same angst all around. <laughs> um, I think what makes it different is that I love talking. So I just like keep on going and no one's rolling their eyes at me and being like, stop. <laughs> So apology in advance to all my audience, I just sort of go on. <laughs> From there, you, you said internet art before. Mm-hmm. I mean, by using social media as a, a medium and you use sort of selfies and, mm-hmm. you know, fashion and the lived experience of the body and teaming that with poetry, it seems like a kind of, it inhabits this interesting space between high and low art. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how have you found your work to be received by, say, the, the formal literary academy? Right. Um, I think the Formal Literary Academy is horrible and I'm completely upset with the types of ways in which art becomes performed as something that's bourgeois and something that should be like, okay, let me give an example. Every time I go to a literary space and I share my work, no one's laughing and I'm like, come on, like, let's move, let's make some noise. And then everyone just sort of, like, sits there very quietly and pensively and just sort of, like, timidly claps. And I'm like, this is so antithetical to, like, not just the work I want to create in the world, but the world I want to create in the world. Um, Because I think a lot of formal literary spaces still rely on this idea of the artist as this enlightened figure that you go and you, like, bear witness to as an audience member, and it's this, like, really hierarchical, submissive relationship. And I think with my art, what I've always tried to do is be like I'm messy as hell I don't know what I'm doing I'm like trying to figure it out so like how are you doing cool <laughs> awesome <laughs> it's much more about that collaboration and I feel like also particularly in the literary establishment it's just so deeply white so deeply cis and so deeply apolitical that what ends up happening is that there's this hierarchy that's drawn between art and then political art um, and it's very complicated for me because it's like I actually I don't think that I could ever write anything that was not politically controversial because like my life my body my experiences are completely erased by every mainstream archive so even when I just say like hi I'm here that's somehow political so I think I have a complicated relationship I understand because there's a lot of my friends and a lot of people I look up to who are doing formal literary work and have such amazing and beautiful words but I think structurally what what frustrates me is that there's this complete disavowal of politics that I think is very problematic. There's been lots of discussion around how social media especially things like twitter tumblr i guess has enabled this growth of of critical theory that's made by different kinds of people with people connecting to each other i mean have you found in terms of poetry that social media enables a sort of more a more living form of of that art form or right um i have a lot of i have a lot of feelings about the url to the irl um and i think one of the things that is important for me to say is I used to really believe in the power and the effectiveness of social media as a way to shift paradigms, like like make people support 
especially queer and trans artists of color. But then I started to really think about it and I was like, oh my God, these social media corporations are owned by the very people who are gentrifying, surveilling, and criminalizing the communities that we care about. And that actually at the end of the day, the more traffic that we're accruing, the more money we're making for them. So the difference between being an internet artist and being, quote, a published, quote, artist has everything to do with labor. And I don't think we talk about labor when it comes to art production enough, but I think what social media has done is standardize the exploitation of oppressed people to constantly be sharing all the secrets of our lives for little to no compensation, um, whereas all the other people who get access to formal entertainment institutions or publishing institutions are able to make a ton of money for being absolutely mediocre and don't actually have to garner tons of followers in order to be seen as legitimate, right? Because what social media has done is you only matter as a black person, as an indigenous person, as a person of color, if you have a certain amount of following, because that shows that your body actually has cachet. Whereas for like white and cis and straight artists, they don't need to prove that. That's already proven by their corporeality, right? So I think for me, I'm, I'm in a moment where I'm really, I'm really thinking a lot about the limitations of social media because I think we have this thesis always that it's like democratizing everything and it's interconnecting everything. But I'm like, actually, is it paying the people that need to be paid? Um, and can that be a real conversation? Like, why have we so standardized that we shouldn't be paying the people who are learning so much from? Mm, I think that's really important. From there, in terms of activism more broadly, as well as the sort of suspicion around social media, how do you feel about art as a tool for activism? Hmm. So I feel like, once again, like, there's a lot of, like, tropes in in the left that we really need to like actually sit down and have conversations about. And one of them is that art is inherently political or inherently subversive or art is inherently revolutionary. And I'm just sort of like, yes and no. And I think a lot of questions are about yes and no, but um, I think art is incredible and in that it's one of the only spaces in the world where we can actually be honest about our pain um, because we go to the academy and it becomes intellectualized and privatized. We go out onto the streets and it becomes criminalized and deported often or incarcerated. So the stage becomes, in particular, one of the only spaces that we can scream. But I think I want to push back against that and be like, why can't we scream everywhere? Why can't art be everything? So the issue is that I feel like often we standardize art as outside of everything else and, and the artist as different from everyone else. And the world I'm trying to fight for is where everyone is an artist and everything is art. Because I think that the, the issue becomes... If we make art only about certain people and certain places and certain formats, it's easy for the state and for other institutions that oppress us to co-opt that narrative. So what you're seeing right now in the U.S. is that you'll see the government give working class people of color art workshops, but not food, right? And the narrative becomes, oh, we want to empower you to find yourself. Like, that's amazing. But there's no actual, like, hey... that. Art, you can't art your way out of poverty. You can't art your way out of capitalism. So this is a way in which this sort of fetish of like art as transcendental actually stabilizes power inequalities. And for me, the way we push back against that is to be like, hey, actually, mm, everyone could be an artist if they didn't have to work a nine to five job in order to afford rent in a city that actually is trying to displace them. Women on the line. 
emotion seems to be really central to your art practice. Um, mm-hmm. That seems to tie into ideas around selfhood and identity. So um, on the Dark Matter Instagram recently, you said, I struggle with how Western society is obsessed with the idea of having oneself or identity. And I struggle with how the only way we talk about gender is as an identity. And I think gender, like ourselves, is relational. So maybe that's a place we could go from, sure. from here. Yeah. Um, I just, I don't believe in authenticity (laughs) and I think it's really hard because it's such a, once again, a trope that we see coming up over and over again that says, be yourself, be yourself, like find your true calling. And I'm like, how are we ever supposed to do that? When from the minute that we're born, we never had consent about anything. (laughs) Um, so like, for example, if I say be myself, it's like, okay, the only words I have to understand and conceive of myself are in English, which is a language that was forcibly imposed on me. Okay, the only ideologies I have to even understand my gender are Western. So I, I don't even know, I don't even know what I am or who I am. So I think actually that the push towards authenticity depresses me because it actually makes it the fault of myself that I have not found myself and not the structures that have like forcibly invisibilized hidden erased and disappeared all of the archives for all of us like i don't even think it's just for racialized people i think the project of whiteness is in so many ways the complete erasure of indigeneity of white people themselves um and so what ends up happening then is that i'm told that um that i should celebrate that i've come into my identity and i'm just sort of like "Mm, this is one identity (laughs) but who knows all the different constellation of power in my life i could have been something very different just one minute difference in in the ways that i was raised or things that happened may have changed who i was so i don't want to create a hierarchy that this is quote me this is one of the many possible me's um, and that those many possible me's are just as legitimate as everything else and that we shouldn't evaluate people for who they've become without actually thinking about all of the systems that help produce them to begin with. You, you mentioned language just before and I, I wanted to ask you actually, I mean, how, how do you feel about words like, I suppose, trans or non-binary or even, you know, the, how people use the pronoun they and the adequacy of those in creating space for your experience? Um, language is a necessary evil. It's something that we have to use in order to give coherence to ourselves. But I would hope that we could get to a place where these words are invitations for conversations. Because I think the way that I see trans and non-binary movements happening are not about that. It becomes about all non-binary people are the same. All trans people are the same. And that's in the eyes of the cis gays, because actually we're just as multitudinous and complicated and weird as everyone else, and that we all have our own genders. There's no two trans people who have the same, like, but, um, and so I feel like, uh, for me, what I've seen happening now is that knowing the word becomes synonymous with knowing the person. And that's just not, not the case. We need to really commit ourselves to understanding that no identity, let alone no word can ever encapsulate someone's entirety. Mm. To, to move a little closer to what you were saying just before as well. I mean, I, I was interested in what you were saying, I think quite recently around, the limits of um, transition as a narrative mm-hmm. for, for lived experience. Yeah, I, I just think that we need to have a history of gender that we don't right now. So one of the things that I started to do when I started to experience dysphoria was to be like, what historical 
relationships are producing this which is I guess like a very me response to trauma (laughs) but then I started to like really read and like talk to people and learn and what I found is that actually uh, for thousands of years there were ways of understanding gender that was not about our bodies and not about the medicalization of our bodies and then I began to recognize actually the medical industrial complex is profiting from trans people's trauma where actually we're, we're giving more money into a system that's deeply invested in pathologizing us and then pretending that it's saving us and so actually like sure people should be able to take hormones or whatever should be able to have any surgeries that they want but I think I want to push back on the ways that we exceptionalize those medical interventions uh, from other forms of body modification. For me, trans politics has to be about the right to own your body. And that means that anyone who wants to modify their body for any reason, the state or the medical industrial complex should not be able to dictate what the terms of that are. But I think the reason that gender has gotten this sort of like special sort of attention towards it actually has to do with the ways in which we're still reproducing this pathology that trans people are the problem that need to be fixed by a medical institution versus actually society is a problem for actually producing dysphoria like i i actually think that all the dysphoria experience comes from the oppression i experience it's not my fault I'm not interested in blaming myself. I often say, I wasn't born in the wrong body. I was born in the wrong world. Like, this is this is on you. Women's on the line. <laughs> oh, that was... Women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> on community radio around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. This week, we're bringing you an interview with Alok from performance art duo Dark Matter, which was recorded in New York City in August this year, ahead of their current visit to Australia. I want to come back to ideas around affect in a moment, but I thought for a while maybe we could discuss mainstream politics a little bit. So um, here in the US, the Supreme Court ruled that marriage is legal in all 50 states in January last year. So in Australia, we don't have marriage yet, although it's pretty topical and, and it's, it's definitely an issue. What, what would you say the legalisation of marriage has meant for trans and non-binary people of colour in the US? Sure. Um, I would say the legalisation of marriage has made it so that we're experiencing more violence. And let me explain. So often we talk about marriage... Um, as if it's not about funding. And what's really important to understand is that in the US, there were a series of strategic decisions where millions of dollars were allocated towards a campaign for marriage when that money could have gone to campaigns against police violence, campaigns against like hate violence more generally, poverty. Um, and so for me, it's it's less about like marriages, it's a straight white institution. Yeah, okay, whatever. Like capitalism is a straight white institution. But what it's more about is from an organizing standpoint, what you're basically saying is that the struggles, trials, and tribulations of rich, largely white people who want to preserve their private property are more important than murder, violence, and disposability of black and particularly indigenous trans and queer people in this country. And so that's horrible. (laughs) Like, I just want to shake every person who's prioritizing marriage. I'm like, okay, that's cool. But like, are you going to donate as much money, as much time, as much love, as much attention towards police violence, towards gentrification? Because what we notice is those are issues that never get the mass popular struggle that things like marriage do. And the reason is, is because they directly implicate the government. 
in a way that marriage doesn't. What marriage does is say, government, please legitimate me. But what actually talking about poverty and state violence does is government, please get out of me, like leave me, stop criminalizing me, stop controlling my neighborhoods. And I think that what we've seen in the US movement and increasingly across the world is that the LGBT movement here was started against police violence, right? It was a movement against criminalization. But then what we saw is that actually a large segment of the population began to join the state. So now the gay movement is the state. Um, and we saw this most evidently with Donald Trump, law at the Republican National Convention saying LGBTQ community, I don't even remember he says Q, I think he might have, um, the Republican Party is here for you. And then everyone claps. And then you're seeing pinks for Trump and this like gay right nationalism. And everyone's like, how did this happen? And I'm like, it's the natural continuation of your politics. Of course, you told the government, please come and protect me. And now they're using you as a way to justify perpetual war. So we're definitely having some of those conversations in Australia, but I think it's, um, I think it's interesting that it's maybe even more marked from the other side of that, um, I suppose, that win. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we've got time for a couple more questions. So I'm, I wanted to ask you about affect in your work. When I saw you speak the other week, there was a, a piece you did and you said something like hope shouldn't be a precondition for trying anyway. Mm-hmm. Would you like to talk about maybe a bit more the role of, of in your, mm-hmm. your relationship with hope? Uh, I have such a complicated relationship with hope. And the, the issue, well, it's not an issue, but the honest thing about me is that what you get on the stage is just what I'm feeling in that day. <laughs> I could literally do the same poetry on like three different days and I have completely different ideas of what hope is depending on what I'm going through in my life. Um, here's what I do know. What I do know is that we live in a world where there's compulsory happiness and hope and that if you don't align your political narratives with hope, progress, and change, then you're just completely dismissed and seen as cynical and jaded. And we're not actually able to talk about the profound, the profundity of bitterness, of sadness, of hurt. Because actually for me and my life, the strength that I've gotten is not from the moments that I am like full of hope and love and progress, but actually from the moments where I'm deeply depressed And then I'm sitting with that and I'm like, okay, my depression is more sustainable than my hope. How do I move from that place, you know? And I think we live in a sad shaming culture too that blames people for being sad and not the institutions that produce that sadness. And I actually think sadness in this world right now is a form of consciousness. Like how could anyone be happy about what's happening in this world right now like it's horrible so every time i meet people who are like yeah it's amazing we made so much progress i'm like what are you talking about um but for me that that sadness isn't about despair and like that there's nothing we can do but rather it's about the reason that i believe in the activisms that i do is not necessarily that i think we're gonna like win but rather because i think it's important right and i think it's too high of a standard And it's kind of ridiculous to only be able to do activism if you think that you're going to have this, like, incredible transcendental victory. The reason we should do activism is because it literally, it's, it's, what I often say is, like, what we call political and activist, it's just actually empathy, care, compassion, like, basic stuff. (laughs) Like, if we basically say we want to be nice to people, that means we have to be an activist in this world. Women on the line. So... You're coming to Australia, which is mm-hmm. one of the reasons we're having this chat. So when, when are you going to be um, around and what will you be doing and how can people find you? So we're still parsing out the exact dates right now, but what it's looking like is I'll be in Fiji, New Zealand and Australia, which I'm really excited about. And um, you can get the actual dates 
it's, it's so funny after our conversation about social media, but by following me on social media, uh, we'll post them on my Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash dark matter poetry. Um, but I'll be going through all the major cities pretty much, um, like Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane. Uh, I'm also making it down to Tasmania, so that will be really cool. Oh, that's where um, I'm from. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I've never been. I had an uncle who lived in Australia, but I never got a chance. He passed away. Um, but I'm very excited because I feel like there's so much amazing stuff going on there that I want to learn from. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, if you feel like it, or like maybe there's time for some spoken word if, sure. if you want. I would love to. <laughs> so I've been working on this new sequence of poems um, in response to street harassment that I'm experiencing. And it's kind of like all I can think about because <laughs> it becomes super all-encompassing. So this is a poem that I just wrote this weekend. Scene. You on the two train downtown reading a book. Strategy. Looking down means you don't see them looking at you. Rationale. They will forget you. You will never forget them. Cue child. Why are his nails painted? Boys aren't supposed to do that. Six more stops. Lose place and book. Cue mom. Boys can do whatever they want. Strategy. Pretend not to notice. Five stops. Cue child screaming. Mommy, it's not right. Boys don't do that. Four stops. Cue train amused. Cue train smiling. Child, look everyone, look. Cue nervous smile. Strategy, laughing at yourself makes them more comfortable with you. Strategy, laughing at yourself makes you more comfortable with you. Rationale, why would anyone want to look like you? Three stops. Cue mom, you better be quiet or that man is going to attack us. Two stops. Cue conspicuous body. Cue Adam's apple, I mean, cue original sin. Cue frenzied breath. Cue palpitating heart. Cue churning stomach. One stop. Cue two big hands. Cue two big shoulders. Cue two big gall. How dare he leave the house? How dare he take the train? How dare he be, or rather, how dare he she? How dare he she? Strategy, do nothing, rationale. Your beauty is their beast. Your victim is their villain. Walk out. Do not look back. I repeat, do not look back. That was a look from performance art duo Dark Matter. As mentioned, Alok will be making a number of appearances in Melbourne this week, as well as others across Australia, Fiji and New Zealand. For more information, please see the Dark Matter page at facebook.com forward slash darkmatterpoetry and we'll also post that link on the Women on the Line website at 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is Community Radio's national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womenonthelineline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 8377. 
Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by La Tigre. I'm Emma Hart. Hope you can tune in again next time.